This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. I am Amy. I'm your host here and the founder of Worth Recovery. I'm a sex addict and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Now, this is episode 52 and is the second part of my five-year reflection. I've been in recovery for five years. Totally crazy. I think about those five years and I think, wow, amazing things can happen in five years totally amazing things. And I also think, wow, not very much has happened in the last five years. It's amazing how our mind plays tricks on us like that, isn't it? Truth is, recovery is the hardest work I have ever done, ever. Hardest work I have ever done in my life. It demands everything that I have, everything. And I'm not just saying that as a joke. It really demands everything that I have. I can't hold back anything. And if I do, I am not really in recovery. I have to give it everything. But I can tell you and promise you this. I have found that if I will give it everything, recovery gives me much, much more in return. It makes the sacrifice of everything that I thought I had seem almost meaningless when I give it all away to recovery based on the blessings that come back into my life through recovery. Over the episodes of this podcast, I've given you thoughts and ideas about recovery. I've given you what works for me, and you've heard some of my experiences in recovery, and you've also heard the experiences of others. And just some of them, though, there are so many, many, many more. I was reminded of some other ones this last weekend as I attended an intensive about the 12 steps and just reminded of some of my other experiences in recovery. In episode 50, part one of my reflection, I shared with you the first part of an interview I did with my first therapist in recovery, Dr. Aaron Glade. There is another like hour of that interview um, and I'm going to share it today, just part of it. I've kind of edited it down to some really great things and, and I wanted to be able to share that with you today. It was so much fun to reflect with him and to hear what he remembered about the early days of my recovery. It was really fun. I'm really excited for you to hear that. Before we jump in, though, just a few things. Of course, a big shout out to our Worth Warriors. Go Warriors! Woo! It's because of you, our Worth Warriors, that this podcast continues to remain free for women throughout the world. There are so many women throughout the world stuck in addiction. They reach out to a recovery world that is primarily dominated by men, and they feel alone, unique isolated, and really, really abnormal. That's how I felt. I felt broken, especially when I realized that the addictive world, again, was dominated by men. This made me feel even more broken as a woman. But the truth is that there are millions of us throughout the world, millions of us, millions of women needing and searching for recovery. And it is time for us to reach out and support each other. This podcast is a big step forward for that. 
women supporting women in recovery. Our Worth Warriors make that possible. Their support provides the voice and the hand of another woman for all women in addiction. Thank you for that, Worth Warriors. You can join the Worth Warriors if this is a cause dear to your heart, if recovery has saved you for as little as $4 a month, that's less than 50 cents an episode, you can get on the website and be a Worth Warrior. Also, just real quick, we have coming in January our next Worth Recovery event. I'm really, really excited and thrilled about this one. This event will be January 21st, 2017 in the Salt Lake City area. In our last episode, I told you a little bit about one of our speakers, Candace Christiansen. She's an amazing trauma and sex addiction specialist, and I'm so excited that she will be joining us. Today, I want to tell you a little bit about our second speaker, Jackie Pack. Jackie is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor. She's worked in a variety of outpatient settings, including working with court-ordered drug and alcohol teens, community mental health, and sexual trauma survivors. Jackie is also certified as a multiple addiction specialist and has been trained in EMDR and EFT. She is the clinical director of Healing Paths. That's a therapeutic clinic in Bountiful, Utah, focused on the treatment of pornography, sex addiction, and intimacy disorders. Jackie is going to be teaching us about boundaries. Every addict I've ever known struggles with boundaries. I would venture to say that that probably contributes to a lot of us developing addictive behaviors, is our lack of boundaries. One of the biggest questions I get about boundaries is how do we develop boundaries? What types do we need? How do we enforce them? Jackie is going to share some of her knowledge and ideas about these questions and even more with us in January. Great times ahead for Worth Recovery. We are growing like crazy. I can't keep up. Honestly, I'm struggling to keep up, guys. We are currently averaging about 100 listeners a day. Every single day, 100 people are listening to an episode. That's amazing. And not just on the days that like episodes get released. That's every day. I'm so excited about this growth we are experiencing in just the few short months that we've been doing this. And I'm really, really thrilled about the number of things we have coming up. So many great things, so many great interviews, so many great people, so many great things. It's awesome. Stay tuned. You'll want to join the mailing list so you can keep up with us. You can do that on the website, www.worthrecovery.com, worth as in you are worth recovery, W-O-R-T-H. R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y dot com. Get on and join us. You'll be happy that you did. Okay, let's jump back to our episode today, episode 52. So I want to share with you the conclusion of my interview with Dr. Aaron Glade. In episode 50, we started talking about what makes a good fit with a therapist. That's kind of where we left off. And we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of that discussion. What makes a good fit between a therapist and a client? Many of you ask me that all of the time. You ask me what works. How do I know if I have a good therapist? How do I know what is a good fit? I had, I was blessed. I had such a, f- a great experience with therapy. I have been very blessed and fortunate in my life. But I wanted to give all you gals and guys some ideas of what to look for in therapy. What makes a good fit? Dr. Glade gives us some really great ideas on that. What works, what to look for, that type of thing. And then we get to kind of finish our interview with what did my first three years in recovery look like? What were some of the things that he saw that were that I was good at and that I struggled with? And uh, and then just talk about 
kind of therapy in general. So are you ready? Awesome. Let's get started. What makes good fit? Sometimes there's Sometimes it's fit around uh, gender, the therapist and gender of the client, right? Sometimes there's fit around, um, you know, for whatever reason, somebody needs somebody else that's going to kick them in the butt a little bit and somebody needs someone who's going to sort of gently guide them along. And, and so there's just personality fit. Right. Um, right. Yeah. One of the big things I know for me with you, why I kept going and like didn't even think about other therapists was um, my experience with you was that there, you never told me what to do. Ever. I remember the first time I told you about this long-term relationship I had had. His name was Steve. We've talked about it on the podcast, so mm-hmm. they're very familiar. But like I told you about this long-term relationship, and I, I knew. I, was, I walked in thinking, if he tells me I have to cut it off, I'm done. Like I, I, I can't cut it off. Like I, I can't do that. And I remember thinking, if he tells me to do that, I just will have to end therapy, you know? <laughs> like, I just was so in denial. I was in denial about that relationship. How early was that? On? That was like the first two months. Okay. I, yeah. I don't remember. It's funny because I, I would think, I'm thinking back, I probably would have told you that you're going to need to end that, but... You uh, didn't. I didn't. I know, okay. you didn't, yeah. And like, and you, I mean, you said, wow, okay, well, that's something we'll have to consider and think about. And But I remember like several different occasions thinking, he's going to tell me I have to do this. And that was never my experience with you. It was always, well, let's think about, you know, would that be a good scenario or what could be better? Or just the way that you approach that whole, like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. My my general approach. Worked for me. Yeah. My general approach is if I can help you make a decision, mm-hmm. um, a healthy decision, it's going to be more powerful than if I tell you to. Yeah. So, right. So we... I hope I can lead you to water and then hopefully you'll drink. Right. <laughs> right. And and that's that's how I that's just sort of how I approach everything. I don't know that I originally set out as a therapist to do that, but I I found mm-hmm. I just that's what I do because I think it's more powerful when um, if you if you experience yourself as making the change mm-hmm. as opposed to the change coming from outside and forced upon you. That's going to be more powerful, yeah, and it's going to be more meaningful. And you need to learn to do that as opposed to just following the rules, yeah. Because you're a very good rule follower. I'm a very good rule follower, and until unless you don't want to like that, right, right, and then you'll you know, but but that's uh, <laughs> but that's not going to make you change. You're just going to be following a rule until you don't want to follow that rule mm-hmm. and reach out or something, right. Another thing for me that I felt like really made a good match for us was. Um, I felt like you were genuinely interested in what I had to say. Like I, in my previous therapy experiences, I felt like there was just kind of a level of tolerance. They were there and I would say things, but it there was no real genuine interest in what I was saying. It was more like, okay, pay me your, you know, whatever fee for the hour and I'll sit here and listen to you cry, you know, or whatever the deal was. And I didn't really feel like there was a, you know, that kind of genuine interest, but I remember two different occasions, particularly where I shared something that was really difficult for me and you even had an emotional response to it and teared up once. And, uh, and I remember you stopping me saying, I, I don't know why I'm having this emotional response. I you probably don't even remember, but I shared something about my dad and I remember you like you teared up and you stopped and you said, I'm, I'm kind of having this emotional response. It was such a great modeling opportunity mm-hmm. that I try to do now, but with, you know, people I work with, but just that whole, you know, I'm having this response and talking it through with me and, and saying like that, that was, that would have been really difficult as a child. Like I, I can't, I can't even imagine that. Mm-hmm. And just having that like genuine concern 
for what I was sharing was huge, was incredibly impactful for me. I always look for that when I share with therapists or I share with different people, like that you're actually interested in what I have to say, that it's not just a, you know, one way type communication. I mean, I'm sure therapists try to have that with yeah. most of their clients. Talk I to me about that. I, well, um, I think you try and experience or model, not just model, but just be in the moment with, with a client and mm -hmm. experience. If I'm experiencing something, then I guess if I'm getting outside of my head and trying to analyze it later, you know, I can come up with a brilliant reason why, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. oh, I'm, I'm modeling emotional congruence. I'm, I'm like you said, I'm modeling empathy and, and uh, being there with you. But I think uh, if I'm if I'm being a good therapist at that moment, I'm just being there as a human being, that and then I'm experiencing it with you, right? And so I'm reflecting back. This is what I'm feeling, mm -hmm. right? Because sitting with you is your is your experience that I remember a lot of things. For some reason, I don't remember that mm -hmm. experience, which is interesting. But but I I think as a therapist, you know, sometimes the most therapeutic thing to do is just be there with the human being and at just on that that level rather than analyzing <laughs> you know and, and trying to be emotionally disengaged or removed right so there are times that that's part of the think about what what's sexual addiction is an intimacy disorder right and i say that all the time you hear me say it many many times and <laughs> and one of the factors is is we're experiencing an intimate connection at that point. We're experiencing emotions, honesty, vulnerability, trust, and part of that is then first acknowledging it so it's not so scary and this is what it is. Right. And, and then connecting around it. And then the hope is that, that you, in this case, can then, as you've had experience there, you can start doing it outside of that room with people in 12-step, people in group, and things like right. that. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then I would say like another really great thing that worked for me in, cause I'm I guess my goal here is a lot of the women that I speak with have really difficult experiences with therapists. And so trying to give them some indicators that they can look for in what's working because mm -hmm. what worked like with the relationship that we had worked, you know, it really worked on so many different levels. And the other thing I would say is I left your office. Every time I left your office, I did have a little bit more hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say I was, sometimes I was angry. Sometimes I was really angry. Sometimes I was pissed off. Sometimes I was really sad. Yeah. I left your office many times crying. We had a long-standing joke. If that you know, I think it was like over a year before I went through a whole session. appointment, a whole session without crying. We had this kind of long-standing joke. I remember the one time I did it. Like I was so close. It was like the last five minutes, and you were like, "Dang, I thought you were gonna make it today." <laughs> But like every time I left, I might have been feeling a really big emotion, but I also had this feeling like uh, I can get through this. Like I'm, okay. I'm, I've got a little bit of hope there, mm -hmm. which really, really worked for me. So you asked at first, what, what should people look for? And it's in some ways, there's a little bit of a difficulty because like you said, there were days you left that you were upset, sometimes <laughs> yeah. probably upset with me. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, it's not always good to always leave therapy feeling good. Right. Sometimes right. you you you're dealing with difficult things, or you need to get your your butt kicked a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And then I I joke about it with my group sometimes when I know a group's going well and somebody says something, they kick them in the butt a little bit, but then they do a good job of putting a little pillow under it you know, <laughs> and to to ease the pain. But but um, sometimes you need that, right? 
So it's not just, do I like my therapist always? Or right. am I happy with them always, right? Because sometimes they need to challenge you. You look for, for fit. Do I feel safe with this person? Do I feel and believe they, do they understand my problem? If not fully understand me, do they understand my problem? Do I feel like we have a goal and we're getting somewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not talking around in circles every week or we're not... Uh, an agenda isn't necessarily being imposed on me, although the therapist should be running the agenda on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an agenda that that doesn't fit right for me. Right. Right. Luckily, I've I've had the the benefit of knowing a lot of very good therapists in my life. You know, now that doesn't mean all of them understand sexual addiction. And right. You mentioned some of the other therapists in my office there three years back or five years back. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't work with sex addiction, right? They're very good therapists. I refer to them, but not for sexual addiction because that's just not what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when it comes to working specifically with addiction, I think you really need, especially sexual addiction, you need to have someone who gets sex addiction is trained in it. Yeah. Um, and then if you have a partner, so does your partner. Because I've had the experience of working with addicts or partners where the they're the other either the addict or the partner wasn't working with a seasoned therapist and it was problematic. Right? Mm-hmm. So do they have a plan and, and they stick to it? You know, for example, when I work with another CSAT and we're talking about disclosure, uh, a couple comes in and we say, Okay, this is how we're gonna do it. And disclosure we need to disclose fully but carefully. This is how we're going to do it. We, you know, we, we, we have a model, a treatment model that we follow because it's not just because we believe this. It's history. History has said this is what works, and these other things are damaging. Right. Right. Don't do them. Now, sometimes they do. Sometimes disclosure trickles out, and you have things that happen. But if they they have a plan, and you can see that kind of going forward, this is what we do. You know, specific tasks that they do, and there's reasons why and. So they're sending you home with with things to do. Um, I I do believe it. Now I, I say you know I said earlier about addressing trauma and not doing it too early. There are times when it's appropriate to do some of that because a person is so uh, overstimulated or, or dysregulated is the technical term I guess. But dysregulated. Yeah, okay. with their emotions, but yeah. right, so they just can't even touch anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Generally, even that is just about uh, being able to manage that so that we can get to the other things until you yeah know, not a lot of the deep trauma work but yeah but that that's often necessary early on just to help somebody calm down but you know I look for do they have a plan do you have a sense that they're ethical does it just is there sometimes people have a, a sense for this doesn't feel safe right I mean there's always some red flag things that I guess poor boundaries mm-hmm. you know uh, between a therapist and client and mm-hmm unethical types of behavior suggestions and in, in ways they tend to approach issues. And so, I mean, there are those things, right? I, I've heard of um, some unethical therapists in the area, right? Uh, the area that I live in and work in that will attend 12-step meetings with their clients and hold them in their office or um, attend 12-step meetings and sort of basically advertise themselves there, right? And uh, all examples of unethical behavior mm-hmm. and things like that. So, um, you know, you don't want a uh, figurehead or a, a you know a, a sort of narcissistic kind of uh, what's the word? You know, a guru that that 
that kind of runs the show. You, you, you want to have someone that is seeking to treat you and help you get to the point where you don't need them anymore, mm-hmm. right? And as opposed to making it be about them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so here's your chance. Okay. What do you remember about my first three years? Uh, so like one success, you know, maybe, yeah. or a good moment, and then one challenge. What was one like challenge you found in working with me or challenge that I had? If you remember, you don't need to, but if you do. So um, I, I do remember, you know, I mentioned earlier about you being an overachiever, and I would joke with you about that, mm-hmm. sort of what I would call good-natured ribbing, mm-hmm. but it was, I think, purposeful too, <laughs> because some, sometimes that can be, you were very good at doing assignments, right? And, and working hard to make it look nice and get an A. And, and, and at the same time, now, success-wise, you, I mean, you, you would do whatever I asked and then some, right? And you would do your work and we'd, we'd go through it and it was, and it was meaningful. I mean, you didn't just mail it in, so. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I do like things to look nice, yeah. but there was a lot of thought behind it. Yeah. Like I wasn't yeah, you weren't mail- trying to rationalize yeah, no, that. Yeah. You, weren't, you weren't just mailing it in. No. Um, uh, and so, so that was easy for me, right? I, a lot of times you have to push people. Um, but, but there were successes along the way, like times when you, when you went home uh, before your father died, right? And you worked on that, where you didn't just go and you know, hole up in all, all of that. Um, I'm thinking later, um, you know, there were some other things around boundaries that you, that you worked on really really hard right really hard boundaries with uh family you know we we started looking at at boundaries around um with with your extended family or well, your family of origin right mm-hmm. and with siblings and and uh mom at that point and and understanding i think you had this sense that there's something wrong but i don't i'm trying to understand what so those and those were what's interesting is it's rare they're rarely leaps and bounds you know forward every time it's slow incremental process Mm -hmm. and that's how it is for almost everyone almost always Mm -hmm. because um, it doesn't come right away it comes in learning how to to set boundaries you know there's one time when when uh, it was the first Valentine's Day after your father Um. died and you ordered, your dad used to order flowers for all the girls in the family, right? Right, right. So you got, you got on, because that's your job, is to take care of your family. Right. right? That was your position. You were, nobody else was, you were the one that took care of everyone. And, and so you did, mm-hmm. right? And you just, I can't remember when it was your sister that said, oh, what did you get? And you're like, um, nothing, right? And, and so I, I just remember that being an example of, it's almost this little microcosm of your entire life, right? It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? it was. And I had a massive breakdown in your office that day. Uh-huh. And it was a wonderful, it was a really thoughtful thing you did for everyone, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so on the positive side, that was just you, right? But but it also was a, a learning experience of, of being able to understand this is what I do. I do everything for everyone, but your job was to take care of others in your family. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what everybody just just did right mm-hmm. and i think at one point didn't one of your uh brothers say by the way you're fired from your job or <laughs> <laughs> yeah we did have to like i i mean i had to initiate my own firing but uh-huh. yes i told him i was like i'm firing myself from this job like yeah. we i can't i can't keep doing this anymore mm-hmm. you know and it was 
And it yeah. caused some turmoil. I mean, it oh, caused it's some. Still causing some turmoil because today. nobody know nobody knew what to do anymore. It's yeah. like it would be like if a parent up and left a family, and they don't now who who's going to make dinner? And everyone's sitting around at the table looking around. Where's dinner? Mm-hmm. And mom's gone, right? Mm-hmm. And and dad's sitting there looking around, going, I don't know what you know. Someone's supposed to make dinner, and that's what it was like for them. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was a challenge, for sure. Um, challenges for you. What was challenges for you? I think, well, there's times we, we pushed and pushed back a little bit around certain things, right? There were some struggles around how do we deal with kind of secondary addiction stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really difficult. That's something mm-hmm. that I just at some point determined this is not going to be worked out with me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stuff around. The family of origin stuff was... Not difficult in that there was pushback, but it's just challenging process to it's challenging for anyone to pull themselves out of their family role their, that they've always held. Mm-hmm. Finding an identity outside of that, mm-hmm. I think, was difficult. But I don't know, you'd be able to speak to that. You know, some of those tasks which were almost emotionally overwhelming, and then you know, you'd come in crying and and and. I chuckle a little bit because we'd laugh about it, and especially now we can laugh about something. But yeah. but they were hard, even though they seemed like they should be simple. Right? Yeah, there were several of those. Um, you asked me earlier before we started recording. Mm-hmm. You asked me about like the male female dynamic. Yeah. Um, as a therapist and client. Mm-hmm. Um, so from my perspective, that was that was really difficult at first. You know, to walk in because. I'm going to tell you about things that I've done with men. Like it was really a difficult thing. And, and then a lot of just the things I just didn't want to talk about, you know, in general, um, ever. And then to do that in front of a man was different, you know, it was really, really different. Um, you asked me, do I, do you, do I think it would have worked if I had a female therapist from the very beginning? I think that's an interesting question. And I, my original response was, no, I don't think, well, I, I think under certain, certain circumstances it might have worked. However, now that we've been talking for an hour, I'm like, no, nah, it probably wouldn't have worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you why I think so. Okay, think yeah, that, go but, ahead. Um, so first of all, I, I have had, uh, you know, when you talk, I guess I, more than a handful of women, uh, female sex addicts uh, that I've treated and worked with. And... and um, why that works for me, I don't know exactly, but I have, right? And like I said, I've, one of the first people who came in uh, to, to my office and the first thing they said was I'm a sex addict was a woman, um, young woman. And and um, and so, but getting back to, to your situation, and this is just a guess, maybe wrong, but um, my guess is at that point, for you was no, it wouldn't have worked if it was a woman because I don't think you attached to women emotionally. Absolutely. That's a guess. No, I, I think you're spot on. I just I, think that that this is this goes back to the attachment wounds and uh-huh. and uh, stuff we'll talk about when we talk about trauma and right. we'll talk about it tomorrow and trauma, right? But but it's this, but for whatever reason, I think that that piece for you, it it was that was threatening. Well, yeah, women, to me at that point in my life, women were all competition. It was all competition for yeah. male attention. And so I didn't attach to women. Yeah. I, I, I think I wanted to, 
I think there's also there's also something about you know we talk about attaching to caregivers mm-hmm. and, and being able to emotionally connect and attach and feel safe in a in an attachment type situation like vulnerability and, and intimacy on, on that level and I think that was a struggle I think that's still a struggle for me okay um, to attach to women women as a caregiver in a caregiving role mm-hmm. you know for me I think that's still something that I struggle with I'm currently seeing a female therapist who I adore mm-hmm. and it's good but when I first started seeing her like I would see you and her every other week and I know I've told you this I don't know if she knows yeah. so it's okay Jackie but yeah. like I would see you both no, every no, other week yeah. I gave I gave you her name you did so I mean that's, yes I yes was, you did it, it, and it was hard because I was in some ways I was trying to pawn you off on her not because but you were living there and right I, right and I had sensed that we were at a place that I can't do what you need 900 miles away right over over the phone or over the the internet right no I totally agree with that we had spent a year in phone conversations mm-hmm. which I needed which were incredibly helpful for me mm-hmm. and then you were actually in Salt Lake mm-hmm. for something else unrelated and we did a session actually at my work office do you remember that yeah. <laughs> we did like, I can't believe I was that bold we did a session at my work office mm-hmm. and I remember just being like sitting in the room physically with you I was like oh yeah no I I need a local therapist I can't mm-hmm. I can't do the phone thing. Like something about being in the yeah. room together, really. Like that point in time was like, oh, I need, I need that. Yeah. And yeah. so you had recommended her. You recommended her when I first moved there, mm-hmm. and you recommended her. And so I reached out and I saw her a couple times. I was still seeing you on and off. I was highly intimidated by her. Like I, you know, here was I, she was successful. I, I just was so highly intimidated by the whole prospect of seeing a woman and talking about sex. I don't know why. Um, but we worked through that and then I started seeing her full time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been good. And you and I have kept in contact, which yeah. has been awesome for me. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm glad cause that's you know, one of the things it, it's, it's a little bit challenging to start talking about dual relationships and therapists mm-hmm. and, and what's ethical and what's not. And at what point, you know, are you able to, communicate on a different level than client therapist. There will always be that dynamic somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it's a different it's a different relationship and dynamic now because it's been more than two years now. Right. And uh, since I've seen you. So um, that's just but that's a challenge to be honest, that is not an easy challenge to sometimes navigate all the Well right, we had some challenges at yeah. first with yeah. it. And trying to navigate what that looked like mm-hmm. or things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was glad that you connected with, with Jackie because I thought this is what you needed at that mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for spending time with me today and reflecting okay. a little bit back. Mm-hmm. Congratulations um, on five years of being in recovery. Thank right? you. We get we get focused on a date so often. Yeah. The reality is you're in recovery five years. Absolutely. All those little date changes in your book are just, I was thinking about this actually before you came in or I was driving my car today. And you think about things like that. They're, they're learning opportunities, right? They're opportunities to learn and to grow and everything. You've been in recovery five years, no matter if mm-hmm. your date's whatever, December what, 2013 or 12 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. five years. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. And there you have it. That's my interview with Dr. Aaron Glade. 
we had a really great time. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something meaningful and valuable there. There's a lot of really great information that he provides. Some of you have asked me if he's taking clients. He lives in the Seattle area, and yes, he is. So there's a link to his information um, on the website, worthrecovery.com, and you can you can click there and call him and set up an appointment if that's something that you're interested in. Five years, guys. It's been five years. I was so grateful for his last words that there might be many dates in my book, my recovery literature book, and there are many dates. It actually took me 18 months in recovery before I found kind of a sobriety that stuck and that worked for me. But that doesn't discount those 18 months. I was doing a lot of work those 18 months. So wherever you're at, ladies, wherever you're at in your recovery, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have 15 dates. It doesn't matter if you've reset your sobriety 27 times. What matters is that you're continuing the process, that you're continually moving forward, and that you're continually getting up, learning new things, and moving forward to find the life and the sobriety and the recovery that will work for you. And that's what matters. In our next episode, our final episode of this series, it'll be episode 54, I'm going to share with you. Do you remember that story I told you about my mom? And that she asked me what was the most important thing I'd learned in therapy or recovery. And so in that episode, 54, I'm going to share with you the three most important things that I have learned in these five years of recovery and the things that have really changed my life the most. As always, ladies, no matter where you're at, No matter how you're feeling, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this very moment, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. I know that. And if you don't, just rely on my knowledge until you figure it out. Remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.